Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Answering the Call, offering a glimpse into the spiritual journeys of local priests, deacons, and religious. And now, Answering the Call with Elizabeth Ficcicelli. Hi there, and thank you for joining us on Answering the Call here on St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 and streaming live to you on stgabrielradio.com. I'm your host, Elizabeth Ficcicelli. Now, if you haven't had a chance to make a pilgrimage to the Basilica and National Shrine of Our Lady of Consolation in Cary, Ohio, what are you waiting for? <laughs> My guest, Father Tom Merrill, is the rector of the shrine, and he's a Franciscan friar who is fluent in Spanish. So keep that in mind if you're planning a pilgrimage, because I know we have a lot of Spanish-speaking Catholics in our diocese, so I want to give you a, a heads up on that. They can accommodate that there now. So that's really awesome news. So thank you, Father Merrill, for uh, joining us today and sharing your story here on Answering the Call. You're welcome, and it's very good to be here. It's a joy to have you. Now, Father Merrill, you hail from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, you came from a Catholic family, but grew up in a not-so-Catholic neighborhood. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, in Minnesota, you, people are either a Catholic or Lutheran. Mm-hmm. Well, in our block, most of the people were Norwegian or Swedish, and they were all Lutheran. And uh, I remember in our community, and especially in Minneapolis, there are fewer, fewer Catholics, let's say, than there are in St. Paul, and I remember experiencing, experiencing some anti-Catholic prejudice when we grew up. Uh, comments were made about things that we did. Uh, we were often made fun of. And, and even, even uh, going uh, to a public high school later, I remember there was a certain ambiance of, uh, if you were white, Anglo-Saxon, uh, and Protestant, you were kind of a little bit more in. And I remember a lot of the kids who were Catholic, in order to really fit in, they would go to the Young Life group or the Protestant youth group. So it was. It, it wasn't like malicious, but did you have to defend your faith in that situation? It was, or a, a, it was more nuanced than it was malicious. Yeah, I, mean, I remember when I first started public school in seventh grade. I, I remember defending my faith a few times, being aware of that, yeah. uh, being aware that there were people who would say things to me. Um, I remember one girl in my senior year. We were in study hall together, and she was honored queen of Job's daughters. And at the end of the year, she asked me what I was going to do. And I said, well, I'm planning to enter the seminary to become a Catholic priest. And for the rest of the year, she didn't speak to me. Yeah, so there, it, yeah, was, bit it there. was there. It was yeah. very much there. Uh-huh. Yes. But your family, as we said, uh, were Catholic, uh, practicing Catholics. Uh, so faith at home and involved in your parish? Yes. Uh, my mother came from a very Catholic family, educated by the Sisters of the Visitation in St. Paul, uh, Catholic to the core. Mm-hmm. My father grew up Christian scientist, and he was so impressed with my mother's Catholic faith, he surprised her after they were married. He surprised her by taking instructions of his own volition and became a very devout Catholic and also became a, a daily mass goer when he could. Oh, very good. Now, you attended Catholic school from kindergarten through sixth grade and then public school from seventh grade through high school. Yes. So when was it, was it in your 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 youth, either elementary or, or beyond that, when you first felt the stirrings of a potential religious vocation? Yes, I almost surprised myself, too, because uh, we had a really crabby old pastor. He was kind of mean. Oh. <laughs> and uh, no one wanted to serve for him. And so I put off being an altar server for a while. And I remember as practicing, we, of course, everything was in Latin, so we had to learn Latin and practicing the Latin. And I remember seeing the priest go up to the altar, and it just struck me, he's so close to the tabernacle. Mm. Uh, and I remember seeing him give out communion, distribute communion, and it was like 
my goodness, a priest can bring who is the most important person in our lives, Jesus Christ. And that thought never left me after that. It was about fifth grade. You were mentioning that some of the priests when you were younger uh, were maybe a little crabby, a little grouchy, yes. you know, not warm and fuzzy. You did you did have one uh, a little bit later. Finally, in-, in the sixth grade, we had a, a priest come to our parish who was really fun. He came to class. He taught us. He had a sense of humor. And we had him over for dinner. And uh, we didn't talk a whole lot about, about priesthood, at least I didn't with him. But I found him to be so human and so so very much friendly. I did pursue uh, the possibility of joining the diocese, Archdiocese of Minneapolis-St. Paul, but I was told, because I'm I'm adopted, both my sister and I are adopted, that at that time the policy was that uh, anyone who was adopted would not be accepted. Hmm, And so I looked at several religious orders, uh, the Precious Blood, of course, who are here in Ohio, and also the uh, Crozier, who are very common in in especially northern Minnesota. Uh, I think what uh, put me off a little bit about joining the Minor Seminary was, first of all, I went to visit, <laughs> I think it was in eighth grade, and I asked three questions. Where do we sleep? Well, they showed me this giant dormitory. Um, I only have a sister. I just couldn't imagine sleep, sleeping in <laughs> That's this, a shock, yeah. this, this ward. Rows of uh, guys. No, no, yeah, with rows of guys. No thanks. <laughs> and then I said, where do we take showers? Well, they showed us this big open room that looked like a gas chamber. Sorry, but it did. That was strike two. And the third question was, when do we get up? Well, we got up at 5.15. I'm not particularly a morning person, so that was strike three. (laughs) So on the way home, my mother said, well, what did you think about it? I said, oh, it's okay, but I really would like to go to regular high school and just meet some girls. I didn't. It was kind of like, not not yet. Not Uh, yet. Now, when were you first exposed to the Franciscans? I was exposed to the Franciscans when I was 15 years old. The conventional Franciscans had their theologate major seminary about... 10 miles away from where I lived. And on the weekends, all of them would go out and uh, help at different parishes. And remember, we had a, a an older Franciscan priest named Father Claude. He was an orator type. He was one of the best preachers I've ever seen. I had read a, a book about St. Francis, and I noticed that this uh, very devoted friar had patches on his habit. I thought, oh my goodness, he's just like St. Francis. And he preached. When he preached, he talked a lot about Francis and other Franciscan themes, and I thought, this is really appealing to me. So when I was 17, I did ask to go to the, to the seminary, and I noticed quite a difference from the diocesan priests that I knew. They were friendly, they were warm, they were very, very welcoming, and that's what left an impression on me. As divine providence would have it, when I was 18, I scheduled a meeting with Dominicans, with the Dominican uh, friars and the Conventional Franciscan friars the same day. The Dominican friar never showed up. Mm-hmm. And the conventional friar did. So I took that as a sign that this is really where God wanted me to be. And basically my uh, question for entrance, of course, things were very different in those days, was uh, the vocation director kept calling me Thomas. He said, Thomas, if you were uh, called to go to the novitiate tomorrow, which of course is the formal beginning of one's training for vows, uh, would you go? And I said, if, would you obey? Basically, he said, I said, yes, Father, I would. 
And after that, there were no more questions to be asked. There you go. So on August 15th, 1968, you entered the House of Studies for Brothers in Louisville, Kentucky. Yes. Um, Your grades were average, not stellar. back, And back then, that was kind of the primary factor for deciding whether a postulant would be put on the path to brotherhood or priesthood. Um, That's not the way the system works today, is it? No, it doesn't. No, there was, there was, and I think it was true across the board in every seminary and religious congregation, and I certainly experienced it during my formative years, that the real emphasis, almost the only emphasis, was on grades. I remember being asked frequently by those who were in charge of me during my formative years, how are your grades? How are your grades? Uh, there wasn't much emphasis on spiritual direction or a spiritual life, as long as you showed up for prayers and for Mass. And I remember always questioning that in my mind, because I saw people who were very holy, but not necessarily particularly academic, who seemed to be far more suited to work with with people who were far more pastoral. So it was always a question in my mind. I had many questions in my mind during those, those years. That was, as many of you know, the years after Vatican II, there was lots of upheaval in the church. I believe there was also a certain mentality of uh, what you should be like, uh, which was somewhat enforced. You should be rather liberal. Anyone who had a devotional life uh, to the Blessed Virgin Mary or devotion to the Blessed Sacrament or anything like that was somewhat suspect. You should be rather questioning all the time of the Church's authority. So, and and I must admit, some of the theology I received during my years, which was uh, the the mid-70s to the end of the 70s, was very eclectic. Uh, there was some traditional teaching of the church, but there was also a lot of uh, uh, playing with or toying with ideas, lots of experimentation. Yeah. And so it was a unique time in the history of the church. Uh, I would have preferred, uh, I sort of envy the young men who are in formation now. I mm. think they receive a much more holistic formation, uh, a good uh, psychosexual formation, a good yes. personality for orientation. But they also... They also are taught what the church teaches, which is something that I somewhat lament. I felt a little bit cheated by that because of the era that that I lived in. And uh, fortunately, I think we are in a better place now. I think really today we are living much more what Vatican II intended it to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, I lived through a period of a lot of iconoclasm, a lot of change for change's sake, a lot of experimentation. And so at times that left me somewhat confused But nonetheless, I I really felt called to this way of life, and I really attribute my vocation to the prayers of the Blessed Virgin Mary and my family and those who prayed for me. Yeah, and we've certainly had many guests on the program that that were also in formation or just coming into the priesthood in that time in history, Um, diocesan priests who shared very much the same story. So it's interesting to hear that the orders were also going through turbulence of their own kind, that even to this day, there's there's still remnants of it, you know, so it's it's just where churches, but as we all know, the church has had much turbulence throughout her history and has survived it and will survive it till the end of time. So, uh, but I yes, agree, it's, it's a beautiful it's, time. It's, that it's we're good in. to know history, too, because the same thing happened after the Council of Trent. I yes. remember in our class on Vatican II, it was said very clearly by our professor that it takes about 100 years for the church to really adapt to the, the teachings of a council. Yeah. So yeah. that that's so, always helped me in keeping my perspective and still my have time. hope. <laughs> yeah, there's still plenty of time, yes. We're talking with Father Tom Merrill. He's the rector of the Basilica and National Shrine of Our Lady of Consolation in Cary, Ohio. And this is Answering the Call. I'm your host, 
Elizabeth Ficicelli. So besides the post-conciliar turbulence that we were just discussing, Father, um, what was your greatest personal challenge during your years of formation? I think my most personal challenge during my years of formation was studying. Um, I like school. I enjoy school. But I suffer from ADHD, and so it was always very hard for me to sit still and to pay attention. And so that that did cause some difficulty with my grades. And Mm -hmm. so I I remember taking a year out of school after two years of theology, and I came back with lots of resolve, and I I did much better. Uh, The last two years of my uh, theology, my grades were improved, and I felt much better about myself and where I was going. So that was my singular biggest challenge. Okay. But as you said, you um, kind of worked through that, got more focused. And that year that you had off, you were really still, you know, uh, in a parish environment and still. Yes. yes. You know. I was actually that year I lived at Mount St. Francis, our mother house, and I worked as a school librarian. I, mm-hmm. I taught different classes. I worked in a parish taking census. So mm-hmm. all of those things really helped me later, uh, certainly to understand a parish. And also uh, later I went back to Marquette University and like Father John, I have uh, two Jesuit universities under my belt, uh, St. Louis <laughs> University and Marquette University, mm-hmm. when I went back to get my teaching credits. And so working in the school library also prepared me a lot for teaching. Yeah, which and, and that's a good segue to as, as we begin to discuss where you've been in these last uh, 40 years. Uh, so as, as you're more focused, you're continuing on your path to priesthood. You were ordained uh, a, a transitional deacon in 1978 and then a priest in 1979. So that is 40 years ago. So first of all, I want to wish you a, uh, a happy uh, anniversary Thank on you. your ordination. And we love to celebrate our priests on these milestones. So it's a, a wonderful year that you're uh, sharing your interview with us. Um, so what I'm going to do is kind of summarize a little bit of where you've been, and then then we can talk about that, uh, because you had a very long and fruitful priesthood. Um, well, first of all, you speak fluent Spanish, and you've studied, being that, I guess, as a result, you studied it in high school, uh, you lived and worked in places such as Central America and Spain. Um, so a lot of your service, very logically so, has been in inner city parishes with Latino communities. You've had assignments in places like Louisville, Kentucky, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Brooklyn, New York, San Antonio, Texas, Costa Rica, uh, Minnesota, um, and your two sabbatical years in in these past 40 years, you've been to Jerusalem, Ireland, England, Rome, Greece, Turkey. I mean, whoever says a life of a priest is boring, and I'm like, I want to live like this, but you have certainly been to many places and many experiences. So as you are looking back over your 40 years, um, you know, prior to coming to the shrine now, you know, what are some of the high points for you in all of that service? I think the high points for me was, uh, and it sort of set the tone when I I volunteered at uh, Covenant House, which was, of course, at that time growing in, in a runaway shelter in New York. I think choosing something that was very uncomfortable for me and entering into a world that was not, certainly not my world has always helped me to be broad, broaden myself. And I think it's been a pattern in my life, entering into uh, working with a Latino community that I've come to to love and cherish very, very much over these 40 years has taught me so much about other people and their many different ways to do things. Uh, I deliberately chose sabbaticals outside of the United States so that I could be exposed to different groups and different cultures. And I've always found that to be such an education for me. Travel, too. Travel has always uh, broadened my boundaries, uh, having a love of art and history being being able to go to different places and understand how other people do things and how other people think 
has really helped me to be very flexible, I believe, in my ministry. And to me, I've been very grateful to the conventional Franciscan friars for making those sabbaticals possible. You know, and that's such a good point, because I think when when you grew up in America and that's really your only experience or your your one city you live in or whatever, your your view of the church, the universal church is a little myopic because it's only what you know. But you have been among the poor. You've been you've you know been in several areas, big cities. Um, wh- where do you see, you know, the, the church heading, you know, in, in this world as you're serving all these people? Um, you sort of touched that a little bit before about that we're in a kind of a good place right now, but yes, in, in many ways, I believe that we are learning so much from the Southern hemisphere from uh, mm-hmm. Latin America, Africa, Oceania. Uh, that's where the church is really alive and growing. And I think they have much to teach us. Uh, uh, having worked with Hispanics, uh, there are several things that I believe that they really have to t- teach us. One is inclusion, uh, love of the priest. They always uh, make the priest part of their families Another thing is is their deep faith. Their deep faith, uh, often expressed in a very devotional way, their love of our Blessed Mother, mm-hmm. uh, their humility. I see so many things in working with the Hispanic community that I have really come come to enjoy uh, and, and cherish. I also find uh, I, I've worked not as extensively, but a little bit in the African-American community. With their respect, they have a great respect for the clergy and also a great sense of the presence of God in their struggle in their lives. So uh, it's it's made me be much more open to ethnic groups. For example, at our shrine, we have large numbers of Syro-Chaldeans who are Iraqi Christians, basically. I don't know, even though I lived in Jerusalem and I know a little bit about Arabic culture, uh, I'm still eager to learn more about them. And I see their family closeness and uh, their great devotion to Mary and in a sense What's happened uh, so frequently is that in the mainstream church, a lot of the devotional life of the church has greatly been extinguished. And so these ethnic groups bring a renewal of the love of, of Catholic practices as we know them. And I think that's that's so encouraging to hear because our Diocese of Columbus is is pretty diverse. You know, we do have pockets of people from all over the world. And and I know sometimes when when people experience that, they've been going to a parish all their life. And now these groups of people are coming in, you know, first it's like it is that, well, who are these people? And, you know, and maybe there's a language barrier. But as we begin to see, like you say, these different gifts, these these loves of the different facets of our faith, you know, it is a beautiful tapestry. And In almost every parish I've been involved in, I've always been a person that has been at a point in that parish when it's changing, and it's been very key for me to welcome these people. And sometimes there is significant opposition uh, to that, but I think little by little, many people do experience the same sense of recognizing that these newly arrived immigrants are a real gift. Mm. And, you know, speaking of immigrants, now I think about your position there as the rector of the Basilica and National Shrine, which is awesome that we have a Basilica and a National Shrine in Ohio. I love that. Our Lady of Consolation uh, in Cary. Many of our listeners have been to Cary. Uh, we, we love it. It's a great place to go pilgrimage. But that's got to be a big change for you coming from these inner city environments to suddenly this very tiny little town in Ohio. Yes, uh, th- th- that's been very difficult. Um, I... I don't, I'm kind of a private person, not super private, but I, when something happens in Cary, everybody knows about it. Like, <laughs> it's a little, it's a little bit difficult. And, and also I have to be tolerant. I have to struggle to be tolerant, but some of the people who have lived there all their lives, their, their world is very small. And so that part of it is 
a little difficult. Also, I've gone from working with Latinos who are so warm and effusive and are very much show their emotions to Germans and Luxembourgers. Who, <laughs> I'm who, German, so I know exactly yes, you what know you're what saying. Yes, you know, very orderly, always on time, <laughs> Functional. But, mm-hmm. but very reserved in their emotions. So that's that's been a bit of a struggle for me. And then, then you know, having these a taste of these immigrant groups who come and they're very effusive, and then but then they leave, and so we have a small town. But what I'm doing is, is I'm just giving that time. I'm trying to recognize that this is this too is a different world, and I've been in many different worlds. So as long as I look at it that way, this is a new world, a new chance, another opportunity, different from many other worlds that I've been in, but nonetheless, I'm going to give it a chance. That's right. You know, you think about a saint like uh, St. Jean Vianney, who, you know, was over in ours, you know, the way over in the outskirts and, you know, because they didn't know what to do with him and, you know, look what happens with him. So, yeah, God God puts us in these places and, and now this is your new mission field. I know you've been active in, um, I know you just came back from Chicago, right, to talk about the shrine. Actually, Detroit. And, we were oh, Detroit. In a, Detroit. Okay. We were in a, a Brother Tom, who was the pilgrimage director of the shrine, we went to Detroit for a three-day convention, a travel show, and we met a lot of interesting people. And I thought it was interesting how all of them reacted to us uh, seeing the habit. They were very interested in, you could see this religious hunger, whether they were Catholic or not, coming out of them. Yeah. And a real interest in what we were offering to them. Yeah. And so it's, I think we're going to get a lot of people coming on bus tours to the shrine, but it yeah. was a very favorable experience. Well, it's located, you know, it seems like in the middle of nowhere, but really there's access to some pretty big cities, yes. you know, within, reasonable within, couple within hour the drive. 500 mile radius, we have Chicago, Cleveland, Detroit, mm-hmm. Columbus, Pittsburgh. Sure. We have a lot of big cities. Yeah. So that's awesome. Now for, for the benefit of our listeners who maybe are not familiar with the story of Our Lady of Consolation and Carrie, can you give us like a little snapshot of what happened up there? Yes. Okay. Uh, there was a Father Gladden who came from Luxembourg. Uh, he started a parish called St. Edward's, and he was. it was very hard beginning at the beginning. There were only a few families. He felt that to inspire the people mostly of Luxembourg descent, it would be a good thing to get, get an image of Our Lady of Luxembourg or Our Lady of Consolation and bring it over for the people. So this he did in 1875. It was housed in a little church of St. Nicholas in nearby Frenchtown. Uh, with the intention of being placed in the St. Edward Church, which, of course, was renamed Our Lady of Consolation. And so in, in, in May of 1875, the people walked amidst bad weather and thunderstorms from Frenchtown to Cary, which is about seven miles, storms all around them. Mm-hmm. Uh, not a drop of water fell on the statue or the people. As soon as everyone was inside, there was a cloudburst. And ever since then, people have been coming uh, to seek the favors of Our Lady of Consolation. And the conventional Franciscans arrived there in 1912. Mm. So we've been there over 100 years as well. And again, we've always been very, very welcome to all kinds of immigrants, Polish, Italian, uh, you name it, uh, Lithuanian, Eastern European, it, uh, many, many different groups who have come to seek Our Lady's favor. And so as a pilgrim, if you go up there, what might you expect to see or do? Well, you would uh, first of all come to mass, and then we have devotions. And you would be, be, we pray with we pray with all our pilgrims. They come up and present their needs and their families' needs, and then we give them a blessing of the relic with the true cross. We have devotions uh, from the first Sunday in May to the last Sunday of October at one thirty p.m. Yeah, and mass for the pilgrims. Usually, most of them come to an eleven o'clock mass. Then they can eat in the shrine cafeteria 
and visit our well-stocked gift shop. Right. That's awesome. Um, it's such a beautiful uh, place. I, I've been up there. The church has been filled with flowers. I mean, I've never seen so many flowers in one church. I don't know if that was maybe May or, or it might have been that time. Um, but I love also the handmade um, little the the detailed gowns. The, the, the Yes. Yes. We, we have a pattern that we give to people. And we've had people make you gowns since the since since the statue came. In fact, we have the original gown yeah. that, that the statue was wearing when it came over in 1875. But people are, make just absolutely beautiful gowns. And as of late, we've had a lot of Chaldean people make gowns. We had a, mm. a lady who made a beautiful red kind of furry uh, uh, gown uh, for Christmas, and we put it on the statue. It was just absolutely beautiful. Aww. And then similar to Lourdes, you have the crutches of, you know, people have who crutches, have had miracles. We have beds. Miracles. We have all kinds of people who are healed mentally and physically and left have left tokens of their appreciation there in the basement church of the shrine. Wow. So I encourage you again, if you have not been to this, and, and when did it become a basilica and national shrine? It became shrine? a basilica in 1973. 1973. So it's a big deal, I think, for our state to have that. But um, that's wonderful. And uh you know, Father Tom Merrill, again, he's the rector of Our Lady of Consolation up there in Cary. Um, I don't know how much vocations work you get to do in your position, but if you were to meet a man, a woman who was concern, you know, considering a, a, a path to priesthood, to being a sister, what would your advice be to them? I would first of all say that uh, God always calls us to happiness. Okay, remember St. Teresa of Avila, she said, uh, God save us from sour face saints, or mm-hmm. it sounds better in Spanish. Un, san, <laughs> un santo triste es un triste santo. It there sounds go. really good in Spanish. But anyway, I think that that religious life is meant to be joyful. Uh, we visited the Dominican Sisters of the Eucharist in Michigan the other day, and they're they're just such a group of happy women. And that's one thing that attracted me to the friars was I saw a group of happy men who are really joyfully living out the gospel. Oh, that is beautiful. I'm going to ask you to um, close this program with your blessing, and if you'd be so kind to do it in Spanish and then English. Okay, all right. Okay. Estimado Señor, te damos gracias por tu presencia con nosotros. Uh, Concédenos también por la inter- intercesión de la Virgen María de Guadalupe, eh, que, eh, a quien siempre nos uh, es- encontramos un refugio, que siempre nos bendiga y nos guarde y siempre nos cuide. In the name of the Father, del Hijo, del Espíritu Santo. Amen. Amen. And Lord, we uh, thank you for being here today. We ask the intercession of the most ever blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of Consolation, that she console us in all our afflictions and guide us on the way to her Son Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns forever and ever. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you again, Father Tom Merrill. What a joy to have you to hear your story. This is Elizabeth Ficicelli, host for Answering the Call. Uh, remember, you can catch this show on Saturdays and Sundays at 12.30 p.m. Uh, stay tuned next week for another episode of Answering the Call. In the meantime, you have a great week. God bless. Answering the Call is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Answering the Call with Elizabeth Ficcicelli are available at stgabrielradio.com. Veni, Sancti.